I wasn't aware of it. Uh, when the book was published, um, I was just a junior in high school, 1973. Now y'all are doing your mental math on that, aren't you? Um, but I became aware of it when five years later I entered seminary and it was um, one of those books that was mentioned in dialogue and in school. Uh, Carl Menninger was the psychiatrist who wrote the book at age 80. Get that. At age 80, he wrote the book that he entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. Have you ever read a book that the title was better than the book itself? This was one of those types of books. <laughs> and it captured, it captured people's attention because Carl was saying some things as a psychiatrist that he had not said before, at least in the way that he was choosing to speak these, these words. Um, he had been a part of a generation of psychiatrists that had done its best to free people from the burdens that are placed upon them uh, by society that says that their maladies are simply because of the choices that they have made in their lives. And that puts a heavy burden on each of us as individuals, but especially those that are struggling with their self-identity. Um, he had worked very hard, and he was not undoing that in the writing of this book, but he was becoming very reflective in his later years about what we end up jettisoning um, for the sake of making one thing right, we create another problem for ourselves. And that is that if we rid ourselves of the idea that, that guilt does not serve a very important role to draw us into a, a, a higher level of living by our, by our willingness to move beyond those things that make us guilty, then we do ourselves and those around us harm. Whatever became of sin, it is a concern that in this culture, uh, we continue to have this loss of a sense of the importance of guilt within our lives. In fact, it's much easier if we simply don't have to think about this. I understand that in uh, the Roman Catholic uh, tradition that it is at a record low. Visits to the confessional booth are at a record low in this generation. Protestants should not think um, strangely of this because uh, you and I are a part of a generation of people who have begun to hear less and less about the nature of what we do with our sin um, or even anyone would be allowed to put a name to the sin that is a part of our life. And so we see this less and, and less in the fact that uh, camp meetings are fewer and fewer and pastors, including myself, are less inclined to speak of those things that might offend someone lest they think themselves less than what any of the rest of us are. And so we choose our words very, very carefully in the midst of sharing. 
And so we break outside of that just a little bit now. Stephanie and I are preaching a sermon series on the seven deadly sins. Um, And I encourage you to not separate yourself from what we will be sharing over these next eight weeks because sin is real. And if you pause long enough to reflect on your own life, you will know this. And on the world around us, there are dizzying social effects to the nature of what sin is doing in our lives. And do you remember the cartoon artist Charles Schultz um, and he created Peanuts uh, for our pleasure in the uh, newspapers uh, of years ago? We continue to, to uh, get these classic versions of, of the Peanuts cartoon. Um, but Lucy uh, was perpetually uh, in or near her little psychiatric headquarters. You remember the booth that she made for herself that, uh, that she would uh, uh, accept visits for a nickel, you know. And so Charlie Brown was, was, was occasionally going to her to ask for advice. And uh, one, in one of the cartoons, uh, Car- Charlie Brown was standing there and, and she leans out over the counter and she says, the whole trouble with you is that you won't listen to what the whole trouble with you is. <laughs> and she marked all of us, right? Because we don't want to know. We don't, don't tell me. Don't tell me what's wrong with me. I'd, I'd rather live in a simple state of bliss than to, to think that there really would be anything in a major way wrong with, with who I am. This is, this is our way of, of thinking. Um, years ago now, um, I went to see uh, the movie called The Passion of the Christ, and I imagine a mon- number of you have seen that. Have you? Did you see it when it came out? Um, powerful film. I, I had gone through a period of time trying to convince myself I would not go to see it because I had, had heard, you know, that, that there was just this um, overwhelming emotional reaction to it by the, uh, the audiences that were seeing it, and I thought, well, um, what... They just not know the story or, or what? Uh, it, it happened, frankly, that, uh, that it was quite an emotional movie for me. Uh, and there's some images that have just simply stuck in my mind um, that, that are not, um, not particularly biblical, but they are good um, understandings of the theology of what is going on in some ways. And, and one of the images was of Jesus carrying his cross up the Via Dolorosa, the, the way of sorrow in Jerusalem. And as he does that, the crowds, of course, are gathered on either side. Um, and he was actually marking the path that became known as the Via Dolorosa. And he, he, as he does this, there is this haunting figure that, that no one else in the, in the scene um, sees everyone in the in the theater sees what's going on, but there is this cloaked figure, this ghostly figure that hovers at the edge of the crowd and moves with him up the road to Calvary. And of course, who else would that be? You know, we talk about God being present when we are gathered, but let me give you some news that Satan is gathered when Satan is present when we gather as well. And he, he waits just to see exactly what goes on if there's anything that con, would concern him about what is going on here. 
he seeks our demise. Do you know that? And for us not to be aware of the danger of evil all around us is to do an injustice to ourselves and the people that God created us to be. Um, I pick up on this in, in the reading of the scripture, and I know you do too, especially in Psalm chapter 51, uh, the confessional that uh, David gave um, in thinking about his own sins. Now, listen to this. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. And he wasn't trying to establish blame on his mother there. He was saying, this is just who I am from day one. I know that it is a part of my very nature. You and I, must be very careful, uh, especially that we not be prideful to the point that we think there is nothing that is in need of the redemption of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is our Savior. That is the definition of what he is about and who he is. If you and I do not feel that there is anything that needs to be saved about who we are, what can Jesus do with us? He came to save sinners, not the righteous. The righteous think they need no saving. You and I must remember who we are. The writer of Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before a fall. And we know this. This is not news for us because we see the pattern throughout life. Uh, the book was not a theological and certainly not a Christian book. It was written by Richard Thaler. He intended uh, no religious purpose to it when he wrote it. Uh, he entitled it, however, The Winner's Curse, and it could have been a prescription for those who are in the church who somehow get the wrong idea about what Jesus is up to. He says that he has found in his study of people who are winners that truly there is this tendency for life to fall apart after this great story of winning. Now, Somebody needs to call the Atlanta Falcons right now and say, beware, beware. The winner's curse, he says, for instance, he says, among gamblers, he said, when someone wins a big take, whether it's at Vegas or in the lottery, wherever it may be, their thinking is, oh, I can do this again. I can beat the odds. And so what happens, especially if you're at a roulette table or if you are at uh, the slots or wherever you may be, you will use up all that you have won in an effort to prove that you are the winningest soul on the earth. 
And this plays out in business, he said. He said, especially with investors, he said, if there is this unbelievable, unbelievable take on the market by someone who just happens to be in the right place at the right time, he said, it is unfailing that these persons believe that they have learned the system and that they then are the ones that become the epitome of this proverb that pride goes before destruction because their destruction is very near. Anthony Campolo recounts the story of a great preacher of the 15th century who was in a cathedral and there were these um, porticos along the edges of the cathedral where there were places for prayer. And in one of those uh, porticos, there was, there was a statue of the Mother Mary. And in this tradition, uh, there was a lady, uh, an elderly lady, that was kneeling before the statue of Mary and praying to the point that she actually was weeping. And so the preacher... Uh, there that day said to the priest at the cathedral, I've never observed such faith. And the priest said, oh, 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 but you misunderstand what's going on. He said, let me tell you that this woman actually as a young lady posed for that stature when it was carved years ago. You and I love the image of ourself high and lifted up because we do not realize the danger of pride. It is the very trellis upon which the other six sins grow. It is the most dangerous, the foremost, the chief among all of the deadly sins. You remember that in Genesis, the story of Eve in the garden, as she approaches that tree that's laden with fruit, and she stands there just looking at it, when all of a sudden the serpent who is in the tree begins to speak to her and says to her, what did God tell you? And she says, well, you know, we can eat of every other tree in the forest but this one, or we will die. That's what God said. And the serpent said, oh no, you uh, will not. In fact, his concern is that you will become like God. You got that? You will become like God. And with that, what does she do but reach up and take a piece of the fruit? And she receives it and shares it with Adam who was right there. I mean, he was in the mix of all of this. And they share out of their wish to be like God. This is a part of all of life. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Cain killing his brother because why? Because of this heavenly affection of which he was jealous We want to be in the place of God and God's blessings. My brother enjoys telling the story about me. 
Um, it was years ago when I, again, was in high school in Cuthbert, Georgia, and there was a nativity, a live nativity on the campus there. They would ask groups to participate in, in manning the, the nativity. And on one of those evenings uh, long ago, the Methodist Youth Fellowship uh, was, was sending youth over to be the wise men and the shepherds and uh, Mother Mary and Joseph and, and to play all the parts, the angels. And I, of course, was one of the wise men, right? And uh, I can still remember, um, because my brother will not let me forget it, that as we were standing there, and I, being one of the wise men, looked over at one of the shepherds, another guy from our youth group who reached into his pocket, pulled out a cigarette and lit up right there at the scene. I was incensed. You do not do this at a live nativity. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I said, listen, you've got to put that out. And this guy looked at me and he said, you going to make me? <laughs> and with that, I jumped on him and pinned him to the ground. <laughs> right there as people were coming by through little Cuthbert, Georgia, you know? And uh, it, was, it was one of those pharisaical moments that my brother will never let me forget. Somehow I was convinced that shepherds just didn't do that. Do you know, do you know just how much damage we do to ourselves and to others by this prideful spirit that makes us look down on everybody that is around us. That's, that's what happens. Micah, you remember what Micah said, do justice, love kindness. This was a three-part thing. Do justice, love kindness. Can you remember the third part? And walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. I'm not saying that there isn't some healthy self-worth that we need to tie into, but this is not our problem because we are a people that are always seeking to garnish praise. We We don't want to be just good in the mix. We want to be the best in the mix. We want to be the ones who others look to. Do you remember that story that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 18? He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. 
For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exhausted, will be exalted. Pride is this spiritual cancer, C.S. Lewis used to say, a spiritual cancer that eats away at us. This is why Paul was trying to make so clear the very nature of who Jesus is. He said, let this same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You and I have the opportunity to put all of this off and at a distance from ourselves. In just a few moments, we will share together in communion. And I ask you to think about the nature of what we are doing in the receiving of Christ and the image of Christ into us. By the way that we come to communion, it offers the opportunity for, to come, for us to come even in a childlike faith. For we come here not for this grand meal, but asking, begging for just a little bit of bread, a little bit of handout. We cup our hands and we receive. Would you remember? Would you remember your place? Would we remember our place? in the midst of God's creation and to walk humbly with our God.